our scripture this morning comes from Psalm 51, uh, but it is a psalm that is written in response to something really particular that occurs um, in scripture. And so before we hear the psalm, I want you to just have that background in your mind. Um, It's a story of King David and is probably the low point uh, in David's life, at least as we get to see it um, in scripture as it's portrayed there. Um, It's later in his reign, um, he's established in a position of power within the Israelite people, but also within the region. He's living in the palace. Life is good um, in Israel. Scripture tells us it's the time of the year when the kings would lead their troops out uh, to fight in battle. Um, And then it tells us that King David sends his troops out to fight, but that he remains home. In Jerusalem, he doesn't go with the troops. And that's our first, I think, indication that things are not as they should be. And then King David, as he is at home while his troops are out fighting uh, battles on his behalf, is um, up in his palace. um, And he spies a woman bathing on the rooftop uh, in a building nearby, inquires about her because she's beautiful and um, has caught his eye and learns that she is the wife of one of his soldiers, one of the leaders uh, in his army who is away fighting his battles, right? Um, And that would be the moment uh, when David should have stopped himself and let it go, right? But David is up in that palace. I think he's enjoying his position of power at this point in his life. And if he sees something he wants, he assumes he can have it. And so he calls Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, um, to the palace um, and sleeps with her and then sends her home. Um, And then um, a month or two later, uh, he gets word from Bathsheba that she is pregnant. Again, here is a moment where David could stop and say, all right, I made a huge mistake. I've committed adultery against one of uh, my men who is serving me in battle. Own up to it, take responsibility for it, and try to move forward with his life. But he does not do that. Um, Instead, he calls Uriah home from battle with the hope that he would come home to his wife, enjoy a couple days off from the battle, a baby would show up eight-ish months later, and everyone would assume it's a baby of the happy couple, and all would be well, and no one would be the wiser, right? But Uriah has left his men in battle, and, uh, and so he doesn't go home to the comforts of his wife, right? Instead, he sleeps with the servants at the palace, and David questions him the next day, asking, why didn't you go home to your wife? And he says, how could I When the Lord's covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, is out in battle with the people and my men are sleeping in the field, how could I go home to the comforts of home uh, when they are all out um, in battle? And so we see Uriah's character in grand contrast to David's in this moment. And so David has another night before Uriah's to go back to battle. And so this time he feeds him a great feast, gives him all kinds of wine to drink, hoping that alcohol would lower his moral compass, right, or throw it off course, and he'd go home to his wife and enjoy her company, uh, and David could get off the hook. And yet, again, Uriah does not uh, go to his home. 
And so plan A of uh, David's uh, falls through because Uriah doesn't conform to what he had hoped he would be. And so he sends him back to battle with a letter for Joab, the commander. And in that letter, um, without explaining why, David tells him, you know, lead the men into battle where it's fiercest, have Uriah right on the front lines. And then uh, when the battle is going strong, pull back and leave Uriah exposed and defenseless on his own. Which is exactly what Joab does, and Uriah perishes, and word is sent back to King David that this has occurred. And David thinks, okay, all is well. Um, And then not long, I'm sure there's like some respectable period of mourning, but not long after that, he brings Bathsheba into his household and takes her as his wife. And he thinks he's gotten away with it all. But there is someone more powerful than he uh, that has witnessed that, and that is our God, right? So God calls the prophet Nathan and tells him what has occurred and asks him to confront David, which Nathan does in really dramatic fashion um, and makes David come face to face with his actions and the consequences of them and puts it all out in the open. Um, And in response to that, one of the things that occurs is that David writes the piece of scripture uh, we will read together this morning. So let us listen to Psalm 51 together. Have mercy on me, God, according to your faithful love. Wipe away my wrongdoings according to your great compassion. Wash me completely clean of my guilt. Purify me from sin. Because I know my wrongdoings, my sin is always right in front of me. I've sinned against you, you alone. I've committed evil in your sight. That's why you are justified when you render your verdict completely correct when you issue your judgment. Yes, I was born in guilt, in sin, from the moment my mother conceived me. And yes, you want truth in the most hidden places. You teach me wisdom in the most secret place. Purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and celebration again. Let the bones you crush rejoice once more. Hide your face from my sins. Wipe away all my guilty deeds. Create a clean heart for me, God. Put a new faithful spirit deep inside me. Please don't throw me out of your presence. Please don't take your Holy Spirit away from me. Return the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach wrongdoers your ways and sinners will come back to you. Deliver me from violence, God, God of my salvation, so that my tongue can sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will proclaim your praise. You don't want sacrifices. If I gave an entirely burnt offering, you wouldn't be pleased. A broken spirit is my sacrifice, God. You won't despise a heart, God, that is broken and crushed. Do good things for Zion by your favor. Rebuild Jerusalem's walls. Then you will again want sacrifices of righteousness entirely burned offerings and complete offerings, then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. 
So as we dive into this series, as I was saying with the kids, we're taking these words we use in worship and these actions that we take in worship, and we're thinking about how they translate um, outside of this space into our day-to-day life. And my hope is that this both enriches the way we live our life. I hope there's things to learn um, here that will serve us well as we think about how we live faithfully in the world. I also hope this translation makes what we're doing in this space more meaningful and relevant, right? So that as we come to the time of confession, having thinking about what does it mean to really say I'm sorry, uh, that that will become more meaningful and um, um, relevant to you as you're worshiping um, in this space. So I'm hoping they inform both places. And today um, we're talking about our time of confession and worship. Um, and what that means, and what that is about. And what um, that time of confession, which occurs pretty early in our service on purpose, um, and that's because it's all about trying to kind of get ourselves in right relationship with God as we prepare to worship God, as we prepare to encounter God. Because what we believe is that right here, right now, as we've heard these words of scripture that have been infused by the Holy Spirit, and we're sitting here chewing on the scripture together, is that we're meeting God right here in this time and place. And we're hearing what God has to say to us. And in order to be able to hear that and receive that, oh, we got to be in a good spot between us and God, right? We want to get ourselves in kind of right relationship with us and God. And so we have that time of confession each week to kind of lay down anything we need to lay down so that we um, we can be in right relationship with our God as we meet God in this place. Um, it's our chance each week to say that we're sorry for the ways uh, that we maybe have failed God or we haven't lived up to the expectations. It's this chance to try to make that relationship right. When we think about right relationship, when we think about relationships that are whole and that are healthy and that are life-giving, something that is, has to be at the core of them is trust, right? Like if we cannot trust another person, it is really hard to live in a relationship with them that is whole and healthy and reciprocal and life-giving. Trust is key. Um, The relationships we're talking about today, I mean, when we look at the scripture for David, it was his neighbor, right, his neighbor's wife. It was the men in his army under his command. I'm talking about any relationship that matters, that is significant and life-giving. So it could be a partner, a spouse. um, It could be your children. It could be a relationship with a parent. It could be a sibling could be a dear friend or a coworker, just relationships that take up a significant amount of space in our life that matter to us, right? And trust, no matter what kind of relationship we're talking about, trust is critical to all of them, right? We have to trust that the other person um, loves us and cares about us. Um, I heard another pastor this week say, love is as love does, right? And so like, People can say they love us, but unless we're actually experiencing that love, um, it it, it is not going to ring true, right? And so we have to trust another person's love for us, and that needs to be getting lived out in the way um, that they're interacting with us, right, and their actions towards us. 
um, if someone starts to lie to us or deceive us, that like it just knocks away at that trust in really big ways. And that can be intentional. I mean, you, you watch David do some real intentional deception that he was real cognizant of, right? It can also be thing, just omission, right? We can, we can hurt trust by just not telling the whole truth or not letting people into the full picture of what's going on in a particular situation. We've got to trust that people are going to show up for us, right? That they're going to do what they say they're going to do. If we make promises to somebody and then we don't fulfill those promises, it's going to be harder for them to trust us the next time. There's all these different ways that trust gets built in relationships and trust um, gets destructed in relationships. But for relationships to be whole and healthy and vital and life-giving, trust has got to be at the core. Sometimes we do things that act kind of like we take like sledgehammers to the trust we've built in relationships. Like David is wielding a big, fat sledgehammer as he um, is living out his life in the chapter that we saw, right? We take things that just destroy trust in really significant ways because they're big. Like they're, they're big and harmful and hurtful. Um, it's like David, Bathsheba, and Uriah's sized harm uh, that we can wield upon one another. Oftentimes, when we got a sledgehammer in our hands, there's a story that kind of tells how we got there, right? I don't think any of us walk through our lives just wanting to wield sledgehammers and hurt the people we care about, right? There are very few people in the world that go in with that intent. A lot of times when we end up with a sledgehammer in our hand, there's a lot of things that have gotten us to that point. And we see that with David. I don't know how David's self-care was as he was fighting all those battles, you know, that led him to the point he was. But my guess is that he had pushed himself pretty hard. And he had undergone a lot of intense experiences in his leadership of Israel to this point. My guess is that his resources were probably pretty low by the time we meet him. Uh, when we do um, in this scene with him and Bathsheba and Uriah and the way it unfolds. We also recognize that David has risen to this place of incredible power, right? The scripture tells us over and over again that he's sitting in a palace, right? And um, it's clear that that power has gotten into him and that he's making some decisions that are coming from a place of enjoying and wielding that power, um, and the ways he can use it to benefit himself without thinking about the consequences um, it would have upon other people's lives. There's a number of things that have led David to this sledgehammer moment, right? Um, and that's often the case uh, when people find themselves in their own sledgehammer moment, moments. More of the time, instead of wielding sledgehammers, you and I walk around with little tiny chisels, right? Smaller things that just chip away at the trust that's been built up in the relationships that matter to us. And those chisels and the chiseling we do with them can look a thousand different ways, right? There's a lot of different things we can do that chisels away at trust. It can be harsh words that we fling at another person in a time of stress, right? So we're super stressed and, and we just... We don't have the filter we normally do. We say things we wouldn't normally say that are harmful. And it chisels away at what a person can expect from us and, and how they can trust us to care for them. 
It can be a failure to follow through. You know, I need you to do this. Okay, I will do that. And then life is insane and crazy and busy and we don't do it. Because maybe the person that we didn't do it for is the person we know. Even if we disappoint them, they'll still be there tomorrow, right? And so we don't follow through from them and we take care of everybody else in our life. And when we do that, when we fail to follow through on the promises we make, we chisel away at that trust uh, between us and another person. Sometimes we let small frustrations, you know, just those things that are just irritate the heck out of us, right, in our relationship. Sometimes we let those things build up over time. So they start to cloud our vision of the other person, right? So instead of really seeing the full person in front of us, we have this kind of warped, distorted vision of who they are, and we start to treat them out of that warped and distorted vision. As we do that, we chisel away at the trust. Sometimes we let our frustration of another person, instead of like just going and dealing directly with them and saying, hey, you did this, and it, I, I'm not okay with it, we go find another person to talk to about it, right? And we gossip about them behind their back because that feels safer than the direct conflict. But when we do that, we're harming that relationship, even if the person never finds out what we say because we know we've said it, right? We're chiseling away at that connection and that trust. We can tell white lies to somebody we care about because we're trying to protect them from something we know is going to hurt them. Or we're trying to protect ourselves from conflict that we know will come if we actually tell them the truth. So it's just easier to like smooth it over, right? Sometimes we, our needs are so paramount, we choose to meet our needs and we do something pretty selfish that ends up ignoring the needs of another person and hurting them, right? There's a thousand different ways we chisel, little by little, at the trust that we've worked to build in a relationship. No matter how we do it, whether we got a sledgehammer in our hand or a chisel in our hand, uh, when we break trust with somebody else, the truth matters. It is important to tell the truth as soon as you can, which is not often our instinct because the truth often leads to places we are a little afraid of, right? Uh, the quicker we're honest with somebody, the easier the healing can come. Because if we hurt somebody and then we try to cover it up, we're just, not only the hurt takes out um, the trust, but then also our deception in trying to cover up the hurt. Or just our, our, our taking the time, the time that elapses. Because if you're not being honest me with me about that, why would I expect you to be honest about other things in our life? We watch David as he tries to cover up uh, his original sin, which was the adulterous behavior, right? And he just digs himself a deeper and deeper hole that ends up costing the man his life, right? Covering up and trying to hide uh, things uh, rarely leads us to a better place. 99% um, of the time, the truth is going to out at some point. And 99% of the time, the more we try to lie about it, the worse it's going to get. Here's the deal. With sledgehammers, uh, when we've taken a sledgehammer to somebody else or to our own life, like, they're really hard to ignore, right? So David in Psalm 51, he says, I know my wrongdoings. My sin is always right in front of me. Uh, when we've taken a sledgehammer to somebody, like, we can't, it is with us all the time. Like, that hangs on us. 
when we're wielding chisels and it's just these little tiny things piece by piece, that is a lot less, lot, it's a lot more difficult uh, to be aware of those little things that we do um, because it's easy to just gloss over them and not pay attention to them. When we check in weekly in worship in that time of prayer of confession, it's this chance for us to stop and think about what we've done in the past week, right? And just name together uh, the ways we as human beings have hurt God and to also in that time of silence prayer to name the ways that we have fallen short, the ways we've hurt God and one another. That time of silence is never long enough, amen? We don't like silence, so we get like 10 to 15 seconds in worship, I think, at most, right? 10 to 15 seconds to name all the ways we've messed up and hurt people in our life in the week, the past week. And it is not long enough for me. My guess is it's not long enough for you. Um, We can't name it all in that time. But I would hope that the time that we do this in worship is this trigger, this reminder to us to be mindful of this outside of worship. To actually take some real time, so, you know, maybe one, two, three, four, five minutes in the midst of our week at some point, And just think about the people closest to us that matter the most to us, who are living with the good, the bad, and the ugly of us in the day-to-day, right? And be mindful of the ways that we maybe have let them down in this week. Or we may be out of a place of stress or tiredness or busyness, have um, hurt them this week Um, and taking the time to see it and acknowledge the ways uh, that we've hurt the people in our life Um, for our own awareness because sometimes I think we just don't notice it y'all I think we're just trucking and I I know I do I do this with my own kids all the time like we're just going and we get caught up and we don't realize the things we've done in the way that we could it's chiseling away at people's trust in us So the first step is just taking the time to see it, but then we actually have to say the words, right? We actually have to go to the person and own what we've done and apologize for it. We we have to say the words, I'm sorry, which can be really hard words to say. If we are feeling insecure at all in a particular relationship in our own life, it is really hard to go to somebody and admit your mistakes, admit your faults. It is hard to say, I'm sorry, because y'all, when we do that, we're extra vulnerable. We're kind of laying ourselves out for people. And if we're feeling insecure in any way, it can be really challenging to say those words. But if we fail to say those words, it's just chiseling away at that trust. Because then not only have you hurt me, But when you hurt me, I can't trust you to own what you've done and to apologize for it. And so I just expect you to hurt me some more and not apologize for it ever. And that just just chisels away at that trust. So we have to say the words, even though it can feel risky. um, It's really important. But it also can't just be the words, right? Because if we say we're sorry and then we do the exact same thing the next day, those words feel pretty pointless and empty, right? The words matter, but the words have to have like flesh and blood and bone behind them, right? 
And you hear that at the end of David's psalm. He's talking about the sacrifices. And back in the Israelites' um, way of being in relationship with God, see Jesus, the way they got in right relationship with God is they made sacrifices. And David says at the end of the psalm, he's like, you don't want my sacrifice. Because if I just come and kill a bull and think, okay, that's good, I'm good. That's all I needed to do. But I don't change anything in here. That's not a real sacrifice to you. You don't want that, God. God doesn't want to hear the I'm sorry and in worship in that 10-second prayer, right? And then for you to go home and just keep doing what you've been doing. Because then your sorry doesn't mean anything. It's hollow. It's empty words. The words matter, but they've got to be followed up with changed behavior. And changed behavior, let's be honest, is hard. Some of these things we're talking about, the way we chisel away, the way we hurt each other in small ways, some of those patterns are deep and long-lived, especially in relationships that have been around for a while. And so changing those patterns, changing those habits, changing those ways of being with one another, that's hard work. That requires us to keep coming to worship, right, and checking in, but requires us also uh, to invite God into the mess because we can't do it by ourselves. You hear David pleading with God for God's forgiveness, and then he asks that, God, would you create a clean heart in me because I can't do it on my own. Could you put a faithful spirit in me because the spirit I got right now, I don't know how to get rid of it, right? There's a piece of this that is beyond our power, Um, that is the power of the grace of God, but requires us to invite God in um, so that we can change the ways that we're relating with the people who are closest to us. Y'all, there is absolutely nothing more precious in our lives than those relationships. At the end of this life that we live, the relationships that matter the most to us they will be the most precious commodities we hold. But we have to care for them. We have to be good stewards of them. Um, It takes energy and effort and intention and vulnerability and risk for those relationships to stay healthy and to stay life-giving. And we can't do that on our own. Um, We need the power of a loving God who created us for relationships. We need the grace of a loving God uh, that says to us, no matter how many times we make a mistake, forgiveness is offered to us. Uh, We need a relationship with that God uh, that can show us the way, uh, the way we love one another with the same love that God has offered us. King David took a big old sledgehammer to his life, but God didn't abandon him. Um, King David took a big old sledgehammer to the nation of Israel. Can you imagine what it was to the people for their leader to commit that kind of sin against their own people? But God did not abandon him. God continued to move in his life, continued to offer him forgiveness, and continued to work through him to lead him and the people of Israel to life. God wants that same life for you and I. Amen.